You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Well, I'm glad that you can be back with us today for Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. And we are right in the middle of a series over the book of Jonah that I have entitled, Sent, Swallowed, and Saved. It's been a couple weeks since I've been able to produce a podcast. Hopefully you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family. I know that the Hawk family had a great time together, and I have just been swamped with Uh, some work for my doctoral program through Liberty University. And so uh, this week, things have slowed down just a little bit, and I've been able to dive into the Word of God, the story of Jonah, and get some thoughts together for this podcast. But I'm glad that we can reconvene and look at this amazing story. And today in this episode, we will be looking at Jonah chapter 3. You know, many people have labeled Jonah chapter 3 the most boring chapter in the book, the oddball, the information we don't really need. And after hearing that, I'm sure that you are now very excited for this episode. But I'd have to disagree with that assessment. I don't think Jonah chapter 3 is boring. I think it's fascinating. But a lot of people say it's kind of just a waste of space. Honestly, honestly, we have a tendency to treat Jonah chapter 3 kind of like we treat the third verse of our hymns in the church. I mean, you know what happens. We sing the first, second, and fourth verse. That old third verse so often gets skipped. Jonah chapter 1 is the storm. Jonah chapter 2 is the belly of the fish. Jonah chapter 4 is famous for that vine providing Jonah shade and then leaving abruptly. Uh, But Jonah chapter 3, nothing's there, right? Wrong. I love Jonah chapter 3. And in some ways, we could even argue that it's the most important chapter in the book for understanding not only the heart of God, but the theology which drives the message of the story. So if you have your Bible and you're sitting down at a place where you won't wreck your car or trip while you're running, go ahead and open your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. If you can't open your Bible, maybe you can get it on your phone, or you can just listen to a few of these verses. You see, in my mind, this chapter can be organized into two main parts. Jonah's attitude and Nineveh's actions. Let's start with Jonah's 
attitude. My question for you, you can chew on it as we talk through this together, was Jonah's attitude good or was it bad? You know, there are reasons to say that Jonah had a good attitude in Jonah chapter 3. In fact, we begin the chapter in verse 1 with the following words, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message that I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now that's very different than chapter 1. When God says, go and preach, Jonah runs the other direction. That's why it's come to Jonah a second time, according to verse 1, because in chapter 3, he complies, obviously from what happens in chapter 2, when he earns himself a three-night vacation in the belly of a big fish. Uh, That would probably earn your attention as well. And Jonah's message, or his sermon, is short and sweet which, let's be honest, that's everyone's favorite sermon, something that's short and sweet. I had a gentleman tell me one time, he said, you know, the very best sermons have an introduction, and they have a conclusion, and they have very little bit in between. Well, I would say that Jonah has the best sermon, if that's the criteria, because he basically has a one-liner, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. We probably don't have the whole sermon. There was probably a little bit more conversation than that, but a long sermon wasn't necessary to get Jonah's point across. If you don't change, you're going to die. In fact, many judgment speeches in the Bible are pretty short as well. It doesn't take a long time to tell someone if they don't change their current trajectory, they're going to be in trouble. If you remember when Nathan approached David about his sin with Bathsheba, he told a story to make a point, but his point was four words. You are the man. Not in a good way, not like, oh, David, you're the man, you're the MVP, more like, no, David, you're the one in the story that you despised. You need to change your life. When Belshazzar, king of Babylon, during the days of Daniel, saw the handwriting on the wall giving his doom, it was only four words. And Paul even described his own preaching in this way, the brevity of it. In Corinthians, the second letter that we have in our Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, When Paul says that my message and my preaching were not of eloquent words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And we have to remember that Jonah travels through this huge city, which required three days just preaching. And a lot of people listen, but how did he draw such a big crowd? He didn't have a big facility. He didn't have a convention hall. He wasn't at a lectureship that had been advertised. It wasn't on Facebook Live. How did all these people know about what he was talking about? Did he go door knocking? Did he stand on the street corners and shout? 
I love this idea. Many commentators guessed that his appearance earned him a crowd because the gastric juices of the fish had bleached his skin white and dyed his hair blonde. (laughs) Very unusual for that culture. In fact, they take it one step further when they compare the sign of Jonah that Jesus references to Jesus' resurrection. You remember Jesus was permanently changed in his post-resurrected form in the remaining days that he spent on earth. Why could this not have happened to Jonah too? I don't know. All we know is this sermon from Jonah was very effective. One speech can make a lifelong difference. And sometimes it makes an eternal difference. Certain speeches have gone down through history and have been memorialized as great moments of history because of the orator who was speaking and the words which were spoken. Abraham Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation, Martin Luther King Jr. with his I Have a Dream speech, John F. Kennedy with his famous line, Ask not what the country can do for you. Ask what you can do for the country. This was Jonah's big moment. It was his big speech, and it changed history. So yeah, we could say he had a good attitude. Or could we say that he had a bad attitude? Let's just ponder here. Was it really necessary for the word of the Lord to come to Jonah a second time? (laughs) Was it really necessary for Jonah to receive a second call to go to Nineveh? We don't know how much time passes between Jonah chapter 2 when he's in the stomach of the fish and the beginning of Jonah chapter 3, but don't you think that if you had been swallowed by a fish and if your life had been spared, you wouldn't need the reminder from God to obey him? Some commentators speculate that God calls Jonah a second time because Jonah goes back to his daily routine, and God once again has to tap Jonah on the shoulder and remind him, Jonah, hello, earth to Jonah, remember why I saved your life. Apart from that speculation, do you think it's possible that Jonah enjoyed preaching the message of judgment just a little bit too much? You know, there are some preachers out there that love to make their churches feel two inches tall. In fact, I had to preach a pretty harsh sermon many years ago at a church where I was serving, and I hated preaching that type of sermon, and a man came up and said, I love it when you do that. I love it when you just hit us upside the head with Scripture, and he was serious. I love it when someone steps all over my toes. People don't love that. I'm not saying it doesn't need to happen, but no one just craves to be rebuked. All we have recorded from Jonah's mouth from this chapter is 40 days and you'll be overturned. Overturned is the same word used in Genesis 19.25 to describe the destruction brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember how destructive that destruction was? It wasn't just a little bit of damage where they called their insurance company to have an adjuster come out to access the next steps. No, it was total annihilation. Now compare Jonah to Abram, who became Abraham, who pleaded with God that if Abram could just find ten righteous souls, that God would spare the city. Now, Jonah doesn't have the heart of Abram or Abraham. Jonah's almost like a landlord dealing with tenants 
who haven't paid him rent, and he's saying, you've got 40 days and you're out. That's it. I don't want to be too hard on Jonah, but he doesn't make the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Then we can move on to Nineveh's actions. Let's not just talk about Jonah's attitude. Let's talk about Nineveh's actions. I love what it says about their hearts. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. It says that the Ninevites believed God. That word believed is so important. It's the same word we find in Romans chapter 4, verse 3 about Abraham, that he believed God and that it was credited to him as righteousness. Even the Ninevites did more than just acknowledge God's existence. They took this new epiphany and they put it into practice. Some basic superficial confession was not good enough. It's what Jonah should have done with his life. But again, it was the pagans, the Ninevites, who said, we will prove our belief by changing the way that we live. And they took some pretty extreme measures to prove it. It says in verse 5 of Jonah chapter 3 that the people declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, which means the richest to the poorest, they put on sackcloth. If you remember in Old Testament times, fasting and sackcloth were the two biggest signs of remorse and repentance. Even the king of Nineveh in verse 6 participates with these extreme measures to prove their belief. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the President of the United States today putting on sackcloth, pouring ashes over his head as a sign of his remorse and repentance? Well, I certainly can't. They even put these restrictions on the animals. Now, I'm not sure what a sackcloth would have looked like on an animal, (laughs) but they did all that they could to prove to God that we believe in you. And so we see God's response in verse 10. It says that God had compassion. He decided not to destroy them. Some older translations even render it, God repented. Always found that interesting. How does God repent? Why would God repent? God has no sin to repent from. What are they talking about that God repented? Well, you remember what the word repent actually means? It means to change your course, to go the other direction. That's what we do when we repent. We change our course. God changed his course. He said he was going to destroy them, but because of their belief, he decided not to. And Jesus mentions the city of Nineveh in Matthew 12 with his sign of Jonah speech. He's talking to stubborn Pharisees who wouldn't listen, and Jesus said in Matthew 12, 41, that the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. God was always impressed by Nineveh's heart, especially in comparison to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. God has laws for judgment, but God also has laws for forgiveness. And it doesn't matter who we are or what we've done, when we believe by putting our faith into action, which for New Testament Christians means not only changing the way you act, but being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we find grace. 
And one of the reasons that I love the story of Jonah so much, just really like all Scripture, is because when we finish analyzing it, it analyzes us. So two questions to consider as we finish. Is your attitude, number one, is your attitude like Jonah's? Jonah changed externally because he finally went to Nineveh, but internally, uh, Jonah was the same man. Jonah said, fine, Lord, I'll go, I'll preach, but his attitude didn't change a bit. He still could not stand the thought of the Ninevites getting a second chance, which, to be honest, it's hard to blame him. He knew what the Assyrians stood for. He knew that they were brutal warriors. They weren't just pagan people, but they wanted to painfully destroy all other nations of the world. Who would want to preach to people like that? But God was very clear. Jonah, that's my call. That's not yours. I've given you a job. Go do it. You know, it's so easy for us to change externally by becoming a Christian, but internally struggle with the same issues. It may be in the way that we view money or how we treat our friends, how we honor or dishonor our spouse, how we plan for the future, how we view church. Yes, I'll be involved as long as we do it my way with my programs and you don't ask me to do too much. Or maybe the way we view worship, sure, I'll sing. I'll sing with a smile on my face as long as you sing the songs that I like to sing. Or as long as you worship the way that I like to worship. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We have to make sure that when our external changes in baptism are internal, our heart changes with it. We're either completely devoted to God or we're not devoted to God at all. There is no middle ground. But that second question, are your actions like Nineveh's? First question, is your attitude like Jonah's? Second question, are your actions like Nineveh's? When Nineveh heard that judgment was coming, they were obsessed with repentance. And I think sometimes we forget that judgment is coming. And we need to repent. Now, we can have blessed assurance if we're in Christ. We don't have to fear death. But it is healthy to ask ourselves from time to time, if Jesus returned today, am I ready? Where is my heart? Where is my relationship with Christ? When the Son of Man comes, what will he find? You know, that good old fasting and sackcloth attitude of desperation is a healthy attitude. Technically, we repent before baptism, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, but we have to keep repenting. We have to keep walking in the light. We have to keep changing our course to make sure that God's will is the defining will of our lives. What that Ninevite king ordered for the people should be the melody of our hearts. Listen again to what the king said in Jonah chapter 3, verse 8. 
Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Listen, I know that God and his kingdom is much bigger than America. But as Americans, we should all be praying these words. We need a White House. We need a Congress. We need a Supreme Court who will pray these words. And we need more leaders and more members of the Lord's Church to pray these words as well. For my friends, judgment is coming. What's your attitude? What are your actions? They must work together to the glory of God the Father. I hope you have a great day. I am so thankful that you have joined us again today for Road Talk. As always, I encourage you to keep your eyes on heaven, and I look forward to talking with you next time.